A reading from the book of Exodus, Exodus 21 through 17. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to your Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that it is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. A reading from the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew 22, 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend on the law and the prophets. A reading from the gospel according to John, John 15, 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. So you should have two outlines uh, in your bulletin today. The first one is from the 930 service, so I'm just going to mention uh, that real quick. The series is called Rediscovering and Redis- I'm sorry, Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity series. And it should then say GCF 19 and 20. And today we finished the introduction at the 930 service. All right, so with that, uh, we're going to get into chapter 1, which is uh, the first emphasis of the 15 is loving God. Now, I must say that as a young Christian, I wouldn't have put this first on the list. The first, In fact, I taught this series originally uh, in, at the church that's now called Christ the King that was called Date New Covenant Church in 1986. And I taught it at a church in New Carlisle all, uh, later that same year, I believe, and at a church in Columbus uh, around 1988. And uh, at that time, it was just 28 parts. Uh, hadn't gr- it hadn't grown yet, which has been a constant problem that I've struggled with is, uh, you know, I kind of think of these series in seed form, and then I just keep adding to them until they get out of control. So I'm trying to rein this one back in. But the, uh, the idea here is that um, our, our Bible-based Christianity in, in Western culture, and I would specifically focusing on America since that's where we live, is not as biblical as we think it is. That's, what, what this, that's the supposition or the thesis of this whole series. And that we need to do a rethink if we're going to build something that's more like God intended the church to be. I, as we said in the first service, the church is supposed to be the light of the world. People should be coming to us to say, you guys have marriages that work. How do we get there? You guys have church kids that are turning out right. How do we get there? You guys handle your finances well. So, you know, when we live in a situation where they say the average evangelical Christian has as much credit card debt as the average non-Christian, then we're kind of missing the whole point. If our marriages, uh, if our divorce rate is just as high as the world around us, then we're missing the point. If, our, if we, we actually have a phenomenon in evangelical Christianity that we uh, call certain kinds of people PKs. Does anyone know what a PK is? A preacher's kid, right? And we expect that if you're the son or daughter of a pastor, you're probably going to be stealing cars, sleeping around, and basically sticking your middle finger up at God uh, while you live out your rebellion. And we, that's our expectation. Uh, and so, um, clear, you know, like I could go on and on, but that was what last, what we covered last week is reasons from a Bible perspective, why we need this rethink idea. So why did I choose loving God first? I, of course, uh, if anyone knows me, uh, you would know that since 1974 or so, perhaps sooner, I began to have a, a concern 
that uh, we need a rethink of the whole scriptures. So we don't just need to read more scripture. We need better paradigms of interpreting scripture. And a paradigm is, is not a big word. It's just, uh, it's two 10 cent pieces, paradigms. Uh, uh, not quite as bad as the first joke, but getting close. Um, so, um, a paradigm is just a set of assumptions that we bring to the text that determine what we're going to get out of the text. And so, for instance, uh, we have anti-supernatural assumptions in Western culture. So we think the stuff that's in the Gospels where they cast out demons, heal the sick, uh, and these sorts of things, well, that was for Jesus and the disciples. But we go to great lengths to explain why it's not for us. When in fact, it's quite clear that the Bible is sort of presenting it as this is normal Christianity. This is what it's supposed to be like. And so, um, you know, we have many other such ways that we reduce the message from what the message intends to be, is intended to be from the author. So uh, I've always had an emphasis uh, fundamentally on restoring a better, better hermeneutical, that is, hermeneutics is just the study of how to interpret scripture. And what we want to do in this church, what we do a lot of, I remember when Amber Poon first came to this church, uh, because of discussions he and she and I were having, I threw in three or four messages uh, called Mountains and Matthew and so forth that was kind of designed to, to sort of acclimate how do you get your Old Testament back? Because she had been raised in a Christianity where the Old Testament's not very important. And we have lots of paradigms of interpreting scripture that, that basically dismiss the Old Testament is not that important. And uh, what, if there's any gift I want to give you, it's I want you to have, get your Old Testament back. As Jesus and the apostles used the Old Testament, you can't read a chapter of the New Testament without their referring to uh, quoting the Old Testament using word pictures from the Old Testament, using historical characters from the Old Testament, over and over and over again to illustrate the things they're trying to tell us about Jesus. Right? Of course, we're living in an unprecedented outpouring of the Holy Spirit worldwide. Uh, and so I've always had some emphasis on who is the Holy Spirit, how do we have a more powerful, intimate, experiential, fruitful relationship with the Holy Spirit. Uh, of course, the church, we talked a little bit uh, at the 930 message about the subject called ecclesiology, which is just the study of the church and why we're missing that uh, in, in evangelical Christianity. So normally those are my hot topics. So why would I start with loving God first? Because you, what we want to do, Isaiah 55, Isaiah is actually rebuking the people of Israel. And he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are my ways your ways. And we read that nowadays as if, well, that's what, that's what the way it is. Our thoughts aren't God's thoughts. Our ways aren't God's way. And, and that's the way it's supposed to be. But actually, it's a rebuke. 
He's saying, by now, your thoughts ought to be my thoughts. By now, your ways ought to be my ways. By now, you should be able to say with the Apostle Paul, the things you've heard and learned and seen in me, if you practice these things, the God of peace will dwell with you. In other words, you want to have the presence of God in your life? Watch how I live in, in, from the attitude motivational level and live that way. And God's presence will dwell with you, right? So um, as far as I can understand, the number one goal of God is to have a special treasure people that are for his possession in which he can dwell in a powerful, glorious way and demonstrate who he is through the presence of God that dwells in, that, in those people and how they love and serve one another. That's what the church is supposed to be. Uh, we looked at this morning, we looked at the Ephesians, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 25, 8, 9, and then jumped ahead to 40. Then we looked at how it's quoted uh, in Hebrews 8, 5 and applied to the church in the New Testament. And that, that we're supposed to make the tabernacle exactly as it was shown Moses on the mountain. We're not supposed to reinvent it. We're supposed to get back to biblical models and biblical patterns for the, for the structure and even for all its furniture, which is us. I'm a footstool in the, in the uh, temple of the Lord. Right? <laughs> so uh, maybe a doormat, but uh, <laughs> you can wipe your feet on me. Um, so uh, the, so when, you, when you look at all that, you got to kind of start to say, well, what would God's highest priority be? And I think it's simply this. God wants us to love him. He wants, he, he wants to reveal to you how much he loves you. I, of course, because we're sinful and because we're finite, so don't, don't play pitchfork with what I'm about to say. You know what I mean by playing pitchfork? That's when, like Jennifer Pet says, takes her pitchfork, says, well, I hope Bradbury's listening to this one. <laughs> and Bradbury says, I hope Kyle's listening to this one. <laughs> that's, what I, that's called playing pitchfork with the scripture. Boy, I hope my roommate heard that. <laughs> boy, he, boy, he's really speaking to my wife this time. <laughs> you know? uh, that's called playing pitchfork with the scripture. So don't play pitchfork with this. But uh, every person in this room is deficient in knowing both scripturally or cognitively from an intellectual point of view and in knowing from a spiritual, practical heart point of view how much God loves you. And every person in this room would be benefited if you understood that on both in a uh, scriptural, uh, in your cognitive processing kind of way, and in, in your spirit and in your heart. If you experience the love of God uh, on, on a more uh, real, tangible, transactional level, you would be changed. As the scripture talks about how he's changing us from glory to glory. That revelation of God's love 
would be a glorious thing that would impart the glory of God to your life. Every one of us could benefit from that, right? So what God foremost wants in creating all this, he's less, you know, Christians fight over all sorts of splitting of hairs of doctrines and practices and so forth. And sometimes we're guilty, as our Lord said, of straining out gnats and swallowing camels. Now, he didn't mean that we actually eat gnats, although I get some on my bike, on the bike path once in a while. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but not intentionally, necessarily. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but I never swallow camels on the bike path. <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, so sometimes we do that where we major in minor things, is what Jesus is talking about, and we miss the major things altogether. And the most major thing of all is that God wants to, you to know more about how much he loves you. And he wants that to impact you in such a way that you love him more. You love him back more. So that's exactly what we're going to deal with today. The, uh, the first scripture reading was from the Gospel of Mark. And there's a, a parallel passage in Matthew the reason I chose Mark's version of it, uh, the, the Luke version that's on your page toward the top uh, is an actual different encounter. But Matthew and Mark have, have the same encounter. And the scripture reading that Jennifer read was from the Matthew version of it, which is here on my page. Um, Now, um, in Mark, uh, when, he, when Jesus is asked what's the foremost commandment of all, that's the New American Standard, uh, the ESV translates that phrase, the most important commandment. And the Wycliffe King James and New King James, which the King James Version, if you don't know this, was a child of the Wycliffe Version, and the New King James is a child of... Uh, of the King James. So one of the things I most enjoy, um, I was with uh, Lourdes Bradbury on Friday, and I was looking at uh, little Michael David, and I was look, and looking at like how much he looks like John and how much he looks like Lourdes at the same time, right? I, that's always my favorite thing is about babies. It's like, it's like, wow. He looks like John, sort of. Then he looks like Lourdes, sort of. But he really looks like if you just shuffled the two together. And uh, it's, it's quite amazing to me. So, um, what, uh, what actually is, uh, in terms of the history of English translations, the first English translation was made by a guy named John Wycliffe. Some people pronounce it Wycliffe. Um, um, and it renders it the first commandment of all. The King James followed that usage, and then the New King James followed that usage. Okay, now, the Young's literal translation 
uh, which was, if you know anything about that, it was made in the late 1800s, that is the late 19th century. And what Young was doing was correcting the mistakes in the King James quite intentionally. <gasps> mistakes in the King James. I know there's actually an idea out there that some Christians have that the King James is the most perfect English translation because, of course, Paul spoke in King James English uh, when, he, when he traveled around the Mediterranean world and, uh, and said, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than ye all. He was also from the South. <laughs> So, actually, there are mistakes in the King James Bible that were put there intentionally. King James, in fact, required them to make the mistakes because he was trying to hold back certain ideas of the Reformation. And so, uh, in Ephesians 4... When they translated the Greek word poimain, it, which appears 17 times in the, in the uh, New, uh, New Testament that the King James was made from, the other 16, it translates the word shepherd. In Ephesians 4.11, it translates it pastor. Because words have a denotative meaning and a connotative meaning, and he didn't want you thinking about a biblical shepherd when you thought about what your pastor is supposed to be. He wanted you thinking of a professional hireling whose primary qualifications were a degree in a seminary, not necessarily whether they loved, cared for, and knew the sheep and were willing to get down and dirty and comb their wool and pull the briars out and, and uh, you know, pull out ticks and and uh, all those kind of things. But a biblical shepherd knows his sheep by name. And he doesn't go where he doesn't lead them. It's, you know, he's a leader, not a pointer. Anybody ever been to one of the big stores like Meyer or Walmart? And then you say, where's the such and such? And they say, oh, it's back uh, in the far corner of the store. And, Row 29 in housewares. And I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> Don't you love when they go, come on, I'll show you. That's the difference between a pointer and a leader. Someone who says, come on, I'll show you. All right, now, so, so in, in the Bible, there's what is called the law. I actually had a... Uh, one of my funniest American experiences with an American Christian was when we first started this church, a guy came and he said, well, the reason it's called the law of Moses is because it's not God's law. It was Moses' idea. <laughs> I'm like, oh my goodness. I boxed his ears. <laughs> yeah. No, Sandy McNamara used to always tell me that she that she pictured when Nehemiah pulled their beards out that uh, that reminded her uh, her of me. But I've never pulled anybody's beard out actually, nor boxed their ears. Um, although I've been tempted at times. So that that one was tempting. Like he, this guy insisted that there was no importance to the Ten Commandments because they were the law of Moses. <laughs> oh man. That's what I said. So <laughs> I said, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> um, 
So, in, in the Ten Commandments are listed in Exodus chapter 20. Jennifer read them to us. Then they're listed again in Deuteronomy, which means Deuteronomus, Deuter, second namas, law, second giving of the law. So they're repeated word for word in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And then in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they're explained using a method that we still use today. If you go to law school, you'll study cases. And in those cases, you'll see how the law is applied. So in Leviticus 23, when it tells us how to celebrate the Sabbath, then it tells us how to celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Booths and, the, and Pentecost and so forth. It's, it's doing what I would call hypothetical case laws. In Leviticus 18, when it says you can't sleep with your neighbor's wife or with your father's wife or with, uh, you know, a, an animal or whatever, it's telling us what thou shalt not commit adultery means. They're case laws to illustrate the definition of thou shalt not commit adultery. And though both testaments use case laws. Jesus said, you have heard that you're not supposed to murder. I tell you, if you're even angry at Bradbury, you'll be guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. So don't get angry at Bradbury. <laughs> right? <laughs> so um, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a hypothetical case law. And they're called ordinances and statutes. So when you're reading Psalm 119 and you say, I, you see, I love your statutes, I love your ordinances, he's saying, I love the case laws. Because they help me know what thou shall not covet means. You've heard that you're not supposed to commit adultery, but I say if you even lust after a woman in your heart, you've broken the adultery law. That's a case. And there used to be a time in American jurisprudence, our, even to this day, if you go to law school, you'll study a, uh, a big, thick book that law students now complain about because our reading level's down a lot. And they'll complain and say, this is too hard, and it's called Blackstone's Commentaries. And Blackstone was a British jurist, a lawyer. Uh, what do they call him in Britain? A barrister. And uh, he was using the Old Testament law to, to uh, shape the, the laws of all English-speaking countries because English-speaking countries have a Judeo-Christian heritage. And it used to be that jurors would sit in the jury box with their Bible, and when they went to deliberate, they would debate which case laws applied to this case the most. Just a few years ago, uh, a juror in, a, in an American case uh, got their Bible out and said, I think this case is a lot like such and such passage, and the judge declared a mistrial and threw the case out because someone had consulted the Bible and that was a violation in the judge's mind of church and state. How ignorant can you get? That's, that's, this is a so-called educated judge who has a degree from law school who knows nothing of our nation's history. Nothing. He's educated beyond his intelligence. 
he's brought new definitions to the concept called EMR, which many people have thought that's what my problem is. But um, all right. So uh, Jesus is telling us this. All the law is summed up in two laws. Love God, love each other. Paraphrasing, of course. Now, if you go back and look at the passage in Deuteronomy 6 that Jesus is quoting from, it does not add the phrase, love God with all your mind. Jesus added that because he's basically saying the Septuagint translation uh, is basically inferring that. So there's a whole lesson in hermeneutics there, but we're not going there. Uh, hopefully, if, if you don't understand what I'm talking about, you, it would help you if you did, because it would help you interpret the Bible better. Both Jesus and the apostles quote regularly from both the Hebrew Masoretic Scriptures and from the, the Greek Septuagint Scriptures, and they uh, quote it with the implications of what the Greek is saying, even when it doesn't specifically say that. And so in this particular passage, he's actually saying that to love God with all your heart and soul and strength includes that you have to love him with all your mind. That's what Jesus is actually very deliberately saying. So what, all right, so that's uh, the introduction. Boy, I really need to walk around. I can't get anywhere when I'm not walking around. Um, so the first thing I want to make sure we understand about loving God is this. Our love towards God is initiated by God's love toward us. In 1 John 4:19, the New King James says, "We love him because he first loved us." The NET, New English Translation, which is my favorite dynamic equivalence translation, says, "We love because he loved us first. And the New American Standard Bible and the ESV say, "We love because he first loved us." The only difference between the New American Standard Bible and the ESV is after the word love, the NASP has a uh, comma, and the ESV doesn't capitalize the pronouns. Otherwise, they read exactly the same. So he, he loved, we love because he first loved us. Now, God deliberately, one of the things that you need to know about God is that he's a creator, and in his creating he deliberately gives us knowledge of him through the things that he's created. So one of the things God does is he creates little Michael David Bradbury to look like Lourdes and John at the same time to teach us some things about himself. And we do, are not brought into this world in love with God. I always tell people when I'm sharing the gospel, the first commandment is you should have no other gods before him, or some translations say besides him. Some translations say instead of him or in competition with him. And the truth of the matter is, if you haven't woken up every day of your life and spent every minute of your life 
from the depths of your being saying, I love you, God. How can I love you more? Uh, how can our fellowship be sweeter and more complete? You're going to hell. <laughs> Unless, of course, you've, uh, that's been atoned for. In other words, you, that's a, the, you were made to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what you were made for. And not a single one in this room has lived our whole life that way, have we? So we don't even need all Ten Commandments to understand we're all lawbreakers. You know, we have a, a very culturally relative, morally relative culture that says, well, I'm basically pretty good. Do you know 80% of people surveyed believe they live a life morally superior to most people around them? Alyssa Ferguson, is there any problem with that math? <laughs> 80% of people think that I live a life morally superior than the people around me. That's what they would say in themselves. So the law is God's gift to us, as Paul tells us, to be a, a, a tutor to show us our need, our desperate need for a Savior. And when we talk about the very first commandment, we haven't lived it. When we think of loving God, we think, well, I go to church most of the time. I don't cheat on my tithes too much. And I read my Bible, you know, four out of ten times that God wants me to. <laughs> and I treat my, uh, my son or my wife or something pretty good sometimes. I'm a pretty good Christian. That's how we think, right? And the law helps us see ourselves, how God really sees us, in need of a deliverer, in need of a savior. Totally, totally under judgment before the court of a righteous and loving God. So when the Lord leads us to Christ, we could put a lot of verses like, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. You didn't choose me, John 15, 16, but I chose you and appointed you that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Uh, we could look at lots of ways of, of understanding that he's the one who calls, he's the one who draws. If we are actually running from reality, we are perfectly content if we can sort of stay where the Pharisee did in the story of the Pharisee and the publican. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. <laughs> right? Don't, I'm not even as bad as my roommate. <laughs> you know. And then we come up with our own arbitrary standards of what? Like I clean my room, he doesn't. <laughs> or whatever. So love uh, is, it, uh, God gives us things like, you know what, your child likes to hug you and say, Daddy, I love you, and so forth, right? And we all love that, right? And slobbers all over us, and little observers on his belly or her belly, and, and if you have a daughter, and whatever, and we throw them up in the air, and most of the time we catch them. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we bounce them on the bed, and... And uh, But the truth of the matter is, 
your child will be somewhere between 25 and 35 years old before they start to be capable of loving you back to any degree of what, you, what you're pouring into them. And the Lord does that so we would know about his love for us. God's love for me is beyond what I, I am uh, somewhat educated, not that much, but uh, I, uh, if I, I try to have some vocabulary, I'm not very eloquent or whatever, but I, even if, if I did my best job of explaining how much God loves us, it would be pathetic compared to how much he loves us. Right? And our love back for him is disappointing on some levels. Yet, uh, the Lord is a lot like my wife. You know what I love about being married to Catherine? Is she's one of the easiest wives to make happy in the whole world that, you know, like... I, ma I make her tea, and like, she thinks this is a great, wonderful thing. That's it. Like, I make her tea every night. I don't do anything else. I don't make the bed, nothing. Don't even take care of her. <laughs> I pay Stephen to do this or that, but I don't, you know, like, you know, uh, I would encourage all of us to be more like Catherine in this respect. She, the slightest little gesture of, of caring or loving goes a long way with Catherine because she is really sweet and nice unlike her husband but <laughs> but you know what she's a lot like god do you know like do you do you like when your kid is zerbering all over your face and you know how kids love to play i love when kids are like uh, uh hudson or Li lily's age where they like to pull your nose and they always oh, poking you and they're sticking their finger in your <laughs> mouth and, Grabbing your glasses. All right. Oh, I hate those smudges. Those baby fingers on your glasses. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, like their love back to us is so inadequate compared to our love for them, yet we're so happy with it, aren't we? Amen. Why? Because God is actually like that. Like so many of us struggle under all kind of condemnation and guilt because we made a mistake here or there or we turned our back on God here or there. Oh, I'm walking away from the mic. I'm going to ruin the message. Oh, well. Um, <laughs> you know, I uh, hope this guy doesn't get loose. Um, the truth is, you know, you just, we just make our feeble attempts to worship him or to read his word. And he is so happy to spend time with us. He's like, wow. You know, David is reading them his Bible. I'm so excited to spend time with David. He's a lot more like John Gray than he is like me. <laughs> In that respect, right? So that's my first point, and I'm running out of time, but the, the first point is simply this. Our love back to God is, is, is as feeble and inadequate as it is, starts with his love toward us. And I would regularly encourage you to ask God to help you hear his voice speak to, to loving you. One of the reason the baptism in the spirit is so important is because Roman five, Romans 5.5 5 says, 
that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that indwells us. The more filled you get with the Holy Spirit, the more flowing in the power of the Spirit, the more able to hear the Spirit you are, the more you're in reality. And the reality is, He loves you. And He's not as hung up as you are on all the sins that you committed in the last 24 hours or the last 24 years. So that's point number one. You know, three different times in the Gospels on three separate occasions, our Heavenly Father spoke audibly over his son Jesus and quoted Isaiah 42 when he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I'm convinced that God wants every father and daughter of God to hear that spoken deep in your spirit so, so that you actually believe it. And so it becomes your fundamental reality that you're living life out of that understanding. Every one of us is, is struggling to get to that place, and God actually wants to take you there. So when you have God on your side, that's pretty good. You know, I, the uh, coach of the Miami, uh, Ohio-Miami University, uh, what are they, the Red Hawks, right? Yeah. Uh, he said, when you play Ohio State, it's like when you choose sides at recess and the other kid gets the first 78 picks. <laughs> and the truth is, uh, we have all kind of things that are going off in our mind, heart, and so forth. I wish the first 78 things you could hear was, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, or daughter, whatever the case may be. So that's point one. Oh, brother. <laughs> um, we need wire mesh in case people start throwing stuff at me for going over. Point two, uh, love is expressed back to God in a lot of ways. Again, I did uh, five two-hour messages on this at Wright State. So I'm, so I'm just going to, you have some scriptures there. Love is expressed if you keep his commandments. It's a very lot like being married when you're, you tell your wife, I love you. And she says, if you love me, get a job. <laughs> if you love me, don't forget Wednesday night is trash night. <laughs> right? So if you love him, keep his commandments. That's actually how you can tell if you love God. Now, before you get all nitpicky about whatever particular sin of the flesh or fear or whatever, step back and look at your whole life. Most of us wouldn't be sitting in these pews if we hadn't made a whole lot of lifestyle adjustments toward God. Now, that doesn't mean we don't need a lot more. But before you beat yourself up, try to reevaluate with more grace. That's why we're called Grace Christian Fellowship. The truth is, God, uh, you know, you wouldn't be here. You know, maybe you don't read the Word as much as you should, but you do read it, et cetera, et cetera. You could go through a whole list of things. Um, flip over. Love is expressed in spiritual intimacy and fellowship. 
God wants us to know him. That verse down there in Ephesians 6, uh, when it has the phrase, to know the love of God which surpasses knowledge, that doesn't make any sense in English, does it? I, Sam, I want you to know what surpasses knowledge. <laughs> Sam Wilcox is like, what are you talking about? I always knew you were a little wacky, Mr. Weiss. <laughs> but uh, what it means is this. It's two different Greek words. He, he's saying, I want you to experience the love of God, which surpasses your intellectual ability to explain it or comprehend it. It's two different Greek words. That's why it doesn't come through in English because we have... Uh, more limited vocabulary about the word no. But he's saying, I want you to be so filled with God's presence and God's spirit and so strengthened in the inner man with that voice that says, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased, that it goes beyond your ability to give an explanation of it or a teaching about it. Isn't that pretty cool? See, love is expressed in loving God's people. Before I was a Christian, I always say this. I, my parents became Christians about seven years before them. And I can't tell you what we used to say because this is a G-rated show. But we used to say the parents had become Jesus freaks and they're talking in tongues and blankety, 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 blank. And uh, because we really hated that the parents had become Jesus freaks, uh, my brothers and sisters and I. And then when I became a Christian, I would ask these people questions about what does this verse mean? What does that verse mean? And I was reading in Matthew when he said this, what does that mean? And, and uh, eventually they'd have to go, Greg, it's 1.30 in the morning and we have real jobs. <laughs> We're glad you're excited about the Lord. I remember the first couple that taught me to worship the Lord. I was singing in this Presbyterian choir, really dead liberal church to be honest, but the uh, choir master was my piano and voice teacher. Uh, believe it or not, I used to play the piano. But, uh, <laughs> and uh, Dr. Tucker was his name. And so this one couple uh, invited me to their house after choir practice, and we sang Christian hymns and worshiped the Lord and stuff, and it was the first time I ever had. And I was so excited. But eventually, they really, they really did. They said, Greg, it's 1.30 in the morning. I'm like, one more hymn. You know? <laughs> one more time, let's go. You know? And uh, like little kids, when you like throw them up in the air and catch them, and, and, they, and they always go, again, again. I think Lily Gray, that's the only word she knows, again. <laughs> you know, whenever you tickle her, whatever she again, again. Say, Don't you know any other words? So, um, love is expressed in loving God's people. You, if, you, uh, if you love God, you will want to be in a more than a see you on Sunday uh, type church. You'll want to be in a church that's pressing into reality and relationships. And the deeper the relationships, the better. If we get uh, to a certain size, we'll eventually have a small group structure. Every church I've ever started did. We're just not big enough that we need that. But we, you know, the reason we're all over at each other's houses all the time and, you know, and so forth is because we're sharing life. Love is expressed in loving one another. 
You can't, how can someone say they love God whom they haven't seen? This is why I harp on this point about the fact that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. You know, the sociologists say that. Why? Because black Christians and white Christians don't want to be with each other. So we have separate black churches and we have separate white churches and we might as well spit on Jesus ourselves. It's, the, it's an abomination to God. You know, I met a young man who uh, I had some Bible studies with and, and uh, he, he knew that I could help him grow a lot in the Lord, but he frankly told me he went to a church from a particular country in Africa that's not in Eastern Africa, I will just say. And it was more important to him that he went to the church with all the people from his own country than it was that he grew in the Lord. And that's, I'm not just picking on that particular country. That's, tr that's just true of, of so many people. With the, why do, you know, like churches have the old people's group and the youth group and the children's group. And you know, do you know why? It's because we have a faulty doctrine called homogeneous. We sit and talk after church with all the people that are like us. That makes God sick. And I don't even want to be polite about it or care if anybody gets mad at me. Sit with somebody who's different than you. Different color, different nation, different socioeconomic status. Short people, tall people, green people, purple people. Sit with people that are different. Really. Reach out to someone who doesn't fit in as well. You know, I'll, I'll tell you, there are certain people in our church, I won't embarrass them by naming their names, that are really good at making people feel like they belong. And that, to me, is the most desirable ministry you could have. If you want to have a great ministry, it goes beyond playing the piano uh, being a great theological teacher or whatever, it's loving people who need some love. And maybe they don't look the same or talk the same. Uh, you know, maybe they uh, have a speech impediment and they're hard to hear. That, that, you know, that is so little compared to what God did when he reached out to us and made us belong to his family. He overlooked a lot of stuff, way more than we, any of us know. And, and I'll tell you, I will be, I'm proud to be a pastor of this church because we have a little diversity. I'll be even prouder if we can have a lot more diversity. I hope we have all kind of people with, you know, we got people with long hair and no hair. <laughs> I, the, weird, the more different it is, the better. So love is expressed in loving God's people. And God's people don't, you know, I, uh, I'm going to tell you one of my own sins. People tell, tell me I shouldn't tell people that my sins as much as a pastor. Thank you for your opinion. But, uh, <laughs> but when, before I was a Christian, I was very bound up by being cool and popular and all that. 
which is about as shallow, that's about as demonic as it gets, like to really care what other people think of you and to want to be cool and all that nonsense. Uh, you know, now I just want to be weird. <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, the Lord arranged it that I ended up having this roommate and this roommate had no coolness. Like if there's cool, like if you got some kind of cool um, merit points or whatever, he didn't have any. You know, like he always had ketchup spilled on his shirt. He, he uh, you know, like he had this scruffy beard that was just a few scraggly wires that looked like a Brillo pad that was used too much. And uh, he was about as uncool as uncool gets. You know who I'm talking about probably right now. It's <laughs> the problem with these stories. There's still someone around who remembers. And I remember one time saying to him, uh, I'll change his name to Sam. We got five Samuels here today. Uh, better not use Samuel then. Uh, what, what, what do you don't have? We got a James. What do we don't have? Steve, we got Stevens. Give, Thomas. Do we have any Thomas? No. So I'll say Tom. His name was real, not Tom. Uh, I said, Tom, why do you wear one pink sock and one blue sock? And I'm not talking like navy blue. I'm talking like light fluorescent blue that looked like somebody plugged it into the Christmas tree or something. <laughs> and I said, you know, like you got this like sort of orange rustish color shirt with ketchup all over it and it, it doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't fit you. And, and then you top it off with a light blue sock and a light pink sock. And they're like fluorescent socks. He goes, well, that's easy. My other pink sock and my other blue sock have holes in them. <laughs> and you know what? I remember this young uh, Christian man that was kind of discipling me at the time said, you know what, Greg? You have more in common with that guy because he's a brother in the Lord and he's seeking the Lord and he's going to the same church than you have with all the cool guys that you used to think you had a lot in common with. And you should be proud to be seen with him on campus. Amen. Well, let's uh, have, is it Anvesh that's taking care of the communion? Let's have Anvesh come forward.